All right, Rabbi, we are good to go, and you can tell me whenever you want the slides up. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know how to set my camera so that um, I'm looking up at you. Oh, I see. Okay, now I get it. Um, well, good morning. I'm going to look down. I hope everybody is staying well, and thank you all so much for sending and asking how Donna and I are doing. We're doing fine. I woke up a little congested this morning, but I think that will surely pass. Uh, we've been staying really busy, and Donna's really recovered fantastically well. So we're feeling good on all fronts, and I hope all of you are too. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be talking about uh, the whole coronavirus matter, hopefully from the standpoint of Jewish law and Jewish um, folklore, etc. A few things first. I've never done anything like this before on uh, Zoom. So that being the case, um, this may be a little sketchy. Number two, I'm wearing two pair of glasses, one on top of the other. I don't know if you can tell it, but that's so that I can see as well as possible but I can't multitask and I can't see a whole lot at one time. So if things bounce around a little poorly, please forgive me ahead of time. I'm going to be essentially running and reading with you a PowerPoint presentation that I have put together, taking a look at the history of the Jewish response to um, any kind of plague or pandemic. And we as Jews have certainly seen enough of pandemics in our two and a half to 3,000 year history. You will be amazed at the things that our ancestors did and have done over the centuries. And you will also see some of the good that has come. And at the same time, you'll see some of the anti Semitism that has arisen as a result of these kinds of plagues. So unless, and be sure if you, I want you to know if you want to ask any questions, please feel free to do so as we go along. After we go through the PowerPoint, uh, I'm going to open the whole matter up to discussion. I hope we have a lively discussion and I'll tell you ahead of time the basic question and that will be the Jewish view of who shall live and who shall die because that's become a major issue of the doctors and the, the medical personnel today as they face um, so many ethical decisions about who gets the ventilators, who doesn't get the ventilators, when to turn the ventilator off and on whom, and also the life and death questions of businesses. How do you balance or not balance community safety with the community economy. So I hope a lot of people will have a lot to say. And with regard to that discussion, I will pull in a couple of cases that came up during the Holocaust with who shall live and who shall die. Any questions so far? And by the way, Rabbi Simon's gonna read questions for me because I'm not sure that I can do that as we go along. Um, okay. So I'm, we're, uh, the other thing that I'm going to do is uh, Rabbi Simon is putting up for me 
the slide, the PowerPoint slideshow. And so that being the case, I'll have to tell him um, about the slides. So here's the first one. This is not Judaism's first pandemic rodeo. This is gonna be a look at Jewish history, law, and lore. Next. Did you hear my next? Okay. All right, this is covering it, so I need to, okay. Uh, according to ancient, uh-oh, is this number two? Yeah. All of us know, by the way, and, and sometimes I'll read and, and in between I'll make comments. Um, the whole concept of plague is something that we are reminded about every high holidays. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, we read this prayer, the Unatanetokef prayer. And the history behind it is that Rabbi Amnon of Mainz um, in Germany, Prussia, according to the legend, he was told by a local bishop that he should give up his Judaism and convert to Christianity. And the bishop gave the rabbi three days to decide. The rabbi took the three days and at the end said that he refused to do that, at which point he was picked up and he was uh, uh, badly, badly beaten and tortured. In that tortured state, he asked to be taken to the synagogue where he, before the Kedusha prayer in which the glory of God is um, announced in our, our prayer, he inserted this prayer and, um, and then asked that it be, after his death, that it be repeated every year on the high holidays. Um, you'll recognize it immediately. On Rosh Hashanah, it's inscribed on Yom Kippur, it's sealed. How many shall pass? How many shall be born? Shall live? Who shall die? Who in good time? Who by an untimely death? Who by water or by fire? Sword, wild beast, and now? Who by famine and who by thirst? Who by earthquake? And who by plague? I think that in um, a number of I think that in a number uh, of years uh, that, that are yet to come, this prayer will mean a lot, will, will be understood by us in a very different way. Okay, next. So, were there biblical instructions regarding how we deal with plagues? And I will, at the very end of the PowerPoint, I will also share with you some of the biblical requirements uh, that an individual must follow if he finds he has a contagious disease. According to the ancient Torah, <clears throat> God counseled the Israelites on proper behavior when facing a plague. God taught, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I gave you as a possession, I inflict an eruptive plague on a house of the land you possess. The owner of the house shall come and tell the priests, saying, something like a plague has appeared upon my house. Next. The priest shall then order the house cleared before the priest enters to examine the plague, so that nothing in the house may become unclean. After that, the priest shall enter to examine the house. I suppose this is a parallel to our swabbing today. Next. 
If when he examines the plague, the plague in the walls of the house is found to consist of greenish or reddish streaks, which appear to go deep into the wall, the priest shall come out of the house, uh, house to the entrance of the house and close up the house for seven days. Now, and this is from Leviticus. Now, what will happen after that is that if he determines that the plague streaks are still there, he closes the house down again, and they go through the entire cleaning process. And once that cleaning process is done, after seven days, he'll look at it again. And if at the end of that time, those streaks are still there and it hasn't been removed, as in an hour day uh, mold, then the house is condemned and can't be used again. Next. Now, are bi biblical plagues always bad for the Jews? And this is really interesting. In 1 Samuel 5 through 6, God afflicts the Philistines with emrods in his anger over the taking of the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. The word translated emrods comes from a root word literally meaning to swell, and the Hebrew word translated emrods literally means mound. The context surrounding the passage has led historians and Bible commentators to conclude that the plague of emrods was actually an occurrence of hemorrhoids. Um, I can't hear you, but I'm hoping that uh, there is some laughter going on. Truly, we are here today because of this plague that afflicted the Philistine army. They had taken our ark, taken it to their, uh, to, to their uh, major palace, and essentially uh, neutralized its power. And had their army not come down with something, I'm guessing some kind of virus or flu, it's very likely that the Assyrians in 701 would have destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom, I'm sorry, the southern kingdom of Judah. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and probably would have ended all Jewish existence at that time. So for us, this plague was a godsend. Next. Once again, plague was our friend at a different biblical time. Um, 701, I think I just went through this. Uh, Assyria besieged Jerusalem, but he failed. Why? According to 2 Kings chapter 19, God says, I will protect and save the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Following morning, they were all dead corpses. Who or what was the angel? Scholars surmise it was either a plague of mice, maybe bubonic plague, or hemorrhoids. We Jews survived part today because of a plague. Next. Now, a biblical cure for the plague in the desert. You will remember that at some point, um, there are two people who come uh, before Moses and Aaron, under the leadership of one of their midst, Korach, and his cohorts, and they complain that Moses and Aaron have taken all of the power of the Jews of the desert, and they want to share power or have it themselves. 
Moses takes this request to God, and God answers by having the ground under Korah literally open up and swallow him and his cohorts, his, his uh, conspirators. I guess it's a modern-day version of a sinkhole. So now um, a plague comes as a result of all of this because Moses had the audacity to take this to God and ask how to get rid of the, these rebels. So Moses tells Aaron to take a fire pan with incense and go among the congregation and atone for their sins. Adam does this, and Torah says, between the living and the dead, and suddenly the plague is halted. Now, what's this business of a fire pan and incense? And where did its power come from? Um, it is called the Koteret, uh, um, and we're going to see this in just a second. And it's a matter of taking various spices, as you're going to see, and pouring it over hot coals, which I guess if you've ever done that in uh, any food you cook and you put the um, seasoning in first and then the heat, you'll begin to smell uh, the seasoning and some fumes and, and with uh, incense smoke will begin to rise. Next. The Katorit, or incense fire pan, was perhaps the most prestigious service in the Mishkan. That's the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the holy temple, both places. It consisted of a special blend of 14 herbs and balms concocted by specific measure. And that was a secret kept by one particular priestly family. And it would say, you take this particular uh, mineral and you put in X amount. Then you take this next one. Don't ask me, I have no idea how they came up with this. And the precise ingredients and manner of preparation were commanded by God to Moses. Next. So how does the burning incense in a fire pan stop the plague? The Keturah incense sacrifice offering was perhaps the most prestigious in the Mishkan. Uh, that includes Moses' tabernacle in the tent and in the holy temple. Throughout the year, the Keturah was burned twice daily on the golden or inner altar that stood within the intersection of the, intersection of the temple. So it was inside the Holy of Holies, not the altar on the outside. Next. See what I was able to do? Oh, I'm getting good at this. Um, so this was the service of the altar, uh, the Ketorah at the court of the temple. The highlight of the Yom Kippur service was the high priest entering the whole holies with a pan of smoldering coals in one hand and a ladle filled with Ketorah on the other and placing the Ketorah over the coals and then leaving once it was filled with the fragrant smoke. Okay, next. Now, why did Moses assume that burning the Ketorah, in other words, spices, would work? Could the belief at the time have been that flavored smoke eradicates disease or moves God to stop the divinely instigated plague? Sadly, fumigation doesn't stop the coronavirus today. But maybe Moses was on to something. We tent for termites, don't we? Next. 
the rabbis thought they knew how the incense would keep away the plague. The Talmud relates that when Moses went up to heaven to receive the Torah, the angels bestowed gifts on him. The gift that the Satan, who is of course that angel, gave us was the secret power of the Ketorah. Next. Um, would that work today? Well, although we unfortunately no longer have the temple, the Kabbalists, 2013th century, I forgot my in parenthesis, Spain and southern France, there it is, say that by reading the portion in the Torah that discusses this incident, this incense incident with Moses and Aaron, it is, if you read it, as if you actually brought it to a temple. Thus, although many have the custom to recite this portion daily, one should take extra care to learn and recite it at the time of an epidemic. So even though there was no longer a temple in Jerusalem, simply um, reading this section from Torah and discussing it and reciting during a time of an epidemic, the rabbis felt would keep the epidemic away. But that's not all. Next. It's said in the name of Rabbi Shner Zalman of Lodi, that in a time of an epidemic, one should learn the following verses together with the commentary of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchak, uh, the Rashi. Exodus 30, one through 10, which discusses the making of the golden altar. 30, 22 through 38, which discusses the making of the anointing oil for the Ketorah. And finally, 16, 31 through 17, 15, which we'll look at later which discusses part of the rebellion, subsequent epidemic, and how they were saved with the Ketorah. Next. Later rabbis had other ideas. Rabbi Zalman said one should read these sections twice in Hebrew and once in Aramaic translation. The idea being that the more you read it in each translation, then I guess God would get it and stop the plague. I knew I shouldn't have slept through Aramaic rabbinical school. Look at the help I could have given today. Next. Other rabbis had other surefire protections against plague. The Midrash relates that during the reign of King David, an epidemic broke out claiming the lives of 100 people a day. Through divine inspiration, David, King David understood the cause of the epidemic and instituted that everyone recite at least 100 blessings a day. And I'd like to explain that. Obviously, King David in biblical times believed that the way that you got rid of a plague is that um, you would make sure that you recited the blessings that you had to recite every day. And that is in line with the 100 people a day who die. Now, what are those 100 blessings? The hundred blessings come from two possibilities. One is the verse from prophets, what doth the Lord require of you, with the word what in Hebrew being ma, and if you add up the numerical value of the letters that make up the Hebrew word ma, it comes to 100. And the other is that if you count up Every blessing that you would say, if you read through every daily service 
um, morning, noon, and night, the three times a day that a Jew is to pray, you would end up with easily 90 blessings. So that means you make sure you go to shul and you pray the full Jewish service three times a day. In addition to that, you're supposed to say your, uh, your blessings before you eat and after you eat. Assuming you eat three times a day, that's six. So that now brings us to 96. And you're supposed to say a blessing thanking God for all the orifices, holes in your body, each and, and keeping them open. You're supposed to say that every time you go to the bathroom. And they figured that would easily take up the additional four, bringing it to 100. So the idea is that prayer would abate an epidemic. Next. In a letter to the Jewish community during a cholera outbreak in the year 1848, the third Lubavitcher rabbi, known as the Semach Tzedek, writes that although nowadays we're accustomed to reciting a hundred blessings throughout the day, nevertheless, during an epidemic, one should be extra careful not only to recite the blessings, but to understand the meaning of the words. Now, my guess is this came up because people were doing, were, were saying their prayers, were praying three times a day, and the epidemic didn't disappear. So the next step was to suggest, well, maybe you need to really concentrate on the words. Maybe that's why this sort of religio magic is not working. Next. The Talmud, though, in addition to saying blessings, also gives us an idea about uh, ways we can avoid an infection. Um, and it, they seem obvious to us now, but were radical in the times of the Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan, for example, would announce, be careful of the flies found on those afflicted with ratan. That was a kind of infectious disease, as they are carriers of the disease. So they already realized that insects could carry disease that could cause plague. Uh, plague. Next. Rabbi Zaira would sit in a spot where the wind blew from a direction of someone afflicted with a ra'atan. So they realized that some of the germs, though they didn't necessarily know they were germs, they sometimes thought it was bad air, they knew that that could carry plague. Rabbi Eliezer would not enter the tent of one afflicted with Ra'atan. And so now we know that uh, isolation was on their minds. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi would need eggs from an alley in which someone afflicted with Ra'atan lived. I guess that would be the modern day warning of bleaching down and cleaning whatever food these days that you bring into your house from the outside. Next. And when all else fails, try a different approach. Here's a novel, as in the novel coronavirus idea, shelter in place. 1774, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azula uh, was traveling to raise money for Israel when he was quarantined for 40 days 
in the port city of Livorno, Italy. While in quarantine, he compiled one of his most famous works, the Shem HaGadolim, Names of the Great Ones, a bibliography of great Jewish scholars who preceded him together with their works. It's due to this work that he's considered one of the fathers of Jewish bibliography. So not only do we see here the concept of making sure that, that people are quarantined um, so that they cannot possibly uh, spread uh, the, the germs of a plague, it also says that this is not a bad idea to spend your time doing the things that you've always wanted to do and perhaps didn't have the time to do. Next. And Jewish social distancing. During an outbreak of cholera in 1831, people turned to Rabbi Akiva Iger for advice regarding large gatherings. His many rulings helped stem the time of the epidemic. He later received a commendation from the government for his help. I couldn't help but write in, must have been quite a news conference. Um, as they say in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Next. And then more on social distancing. Unfortunately, and what I'm about to read here isn't quite right, I'm going to qualify it. Unfortunately, a social distancing ruling couldn't have helped. Cholera is not contagious. Well, let me just read one more and then I'll, I'll, I'll qualify it. It's acquired by drinking contaminated water. Um, and what I want to say there is, however, it is contagious through um, germs that come through um, because it's it's a, um, a disease of the gut. Uh, it's something that if you do drink contained water, then indirectly it is passed from person to person, just not personally. So it's not done in terms of, it's not transferred by um, air contamination, but that didn't stop the rabbi from trying. And um, I, I'm sure the congratulations were still worth it. In fact, <clears throat> and this is really interesting, one of his rulings he wrote, each minion should be limited to 15 people. What does that sound like today? So our, our ancestors already uh, in the 1800s realized that social distancing in times of an epidemic were extremely important. Next. Uh, Rabbi, just because Dave had asked earlier about um, Jewish response to this and the churches that are staying open, um, I did read an article about the spread of the virus in ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel because mm. not everyone is taking it seriously and they are still having minion and still having people gather for, for services. So interesting. Not all of these teachings are being followed the way they should by, by the, the ultra-Orthodox either. No, and we now know that the uh, Israeli Minister for Health uh, has come down with an active case of the virus. Uh, Eastern European Jews folk, used folk uh, magic to ward off cholera. In one place, four girls would be hitched to a plow that they would drag across a plot of land in the path of the advancing epidemic. 
Ordinary people might also wear red string bracelets or rings made of palms used during the festival of Sukkot. I'm not sure why only girls. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to think about that one. Um, and the other is um, it, it, the red string bracelets, I suppose, were somehow considered to be magic amulets. Um, obviously our ancestors tried everything and anything because their societies were turned so upside down. Next. <clears throat> what we're about to read next is next to unbelievable. People will jump at any Meshugana idea for people to follow with the hope that it could somehow stop an epidemic or a pandemic. This one is called the Plague Wedding. There's another Eastern European communal ritual of defense and protect protection. It's called the Cholera Wedding or the Plague Wedding. The cholera wedding generally involved finding two of the most marginal residents of the town, whether orphans, beggars, or the physically handicapped, and forcibly marrying them, usually in, uh, marrying them to each other, usually in the cemetery. Next. Today, scientists understand the Black Death or Plague is spread by a bacillus called Yersinia pestis. Next. But again, our ancestors in the 1800s didn't understand that. The cholera wedding then, or in Yiddish, the Schwarze Kasana, which is the black wedding, or Magefa Kasana, plague wedding, was a newly invented modern response to what was then a new disease. Again, because they didn't understand how it was passed along. The first evidence of a plague wedding comes from 1831 during Russia's first cholera pandemic. Another was described as taking place during the pandemic, the uh, epidemic in Krakow in 1849. Next. At first, the Jewish authorities tried to suppress those weddings. Ladies, you're gonna love this one. They were often raucous parties and they were organized by women, so the rabbis were eager to assert authority. In other words, women should not be allowed to simply set up parties for events that the rabbis put into place. Uh, women need to stay, needed to stay in their place. In 18, by 1892, the cholera bacterium was already identified, but the Russian Empire was ill-equipped to fight the disease across its vast area. What does that sound like? Thus, the plague wedding became entrenched. Next. The plague wedding didn't have one single interpretation. Some rabbis felt that marrying off a needy bride, because if she was, and I'm just adding here, she was literally usually unmarried, probably, uh, not of what the community considered bridal quality, and therefore more than likely never uh, going to be married, by marrying off a needy bride was a great mitzvah that would please God and stop the epidemic. 
That was one theory about how these weddings would work. However, what comes across in many of the appalling descriptions of the forcibly married and their reactions to each other, and I'll add here, can you imagine, is that the act was far more callous than charitable. And in a minute, I'm gonna stop and ask you to tell me what you think how, how you think they thought this kind of forced wedding could hold off a play. What was the magic or the symbolism contained in it? Next. Next. The last such wedding was held on November 10th, 1918 in Winnipeg during the Spanish flu epidemic. It united, and these are from records, Harry Fleckman and Dora Weissman at one end of the, that's right, Sharitzetic Cemetery in Winnipeg. That was the congregation there. The ceremony drew more than a thousand Jewish and Gentile guests. Can you imagine? It included a minion of 10 Jewish men. Why? Who were there conducting a funeral for an influenza victim at the other end of the graveyard. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have this forced uh, uh, epidemic wedding while a victim was buried probably uh, two or three hundred feet away, and that you had a thousand Jews and Gentiles there. Um, so I'd like to stop for one second and. Um, do people have any thoughts how they thought this particular um, institution would somehow hold off a plague or abate the plague? Any thoughts? And you can unmute yourself if you want to share. Rabbi, this is Liz Greengold. Hi. Perhaps they thought uh, that you would get a better um, immunosuppress, like a, a stronger genetic pool after the, the offspring of the plague victims. That's you fascinating. Know. I never would have thought of that. Wow. Huh. This is Robert Singer. Maybe yeah. they thought these were the people that had the plague or were causing the plague because they were the destitute ones. Okay, that could be. Um, the only thing is there's nothing in the description of this kind of wedding that specifically says that, um, you know, they either carried the plague or were suspected of being the ones, but it could very well be. Anyone else? Well, maybe a thought I had is if you do something bad, something outlandish, then somehow God would see it and stop something that is bad and outlandish. Hmm. I mean, we can't really get into the minds of those Jews who set this up, but... I think Richard had a thought, too. Okay, Richard? The, the contrary may have occurred by all those people gathering together. They probably infected themselves with the Spanish flu. Um, 
could you uh, i that was not loud enough for me to hear and i said with with everyone gathering together they probably ended up spreading the flu oh absolutely without realizing it sure Okay. If and no, I don't know if that rabbi, that rabbi probably was not arrested by the attorney general. No. Uh, no. no. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go back to the. Okay. Next. The Jewish authorities finally shut down the practice. They realized its superstitious basis and feared that continuing would keep people from getting legitimate medical treatment. And that's a very, um, um, what do you call it? That's a very interesting insight that you can promote theories that not only are um, not workable, but they can keep other solutions from uh, taking effect, and we have to be careful of that. The whether you should wear the mask or not the mask controversy is kind of akin to that. Next. The Black Death, bubonic, bubonic plague. No pandemic was as harmful to the Jewish community as this disease and its repercussions. Today, scientists understand that the Black Death is spread by a bacillus uh, called Yersinia pestis. The bacillus travels from person to person through the air, as well as from rat and flea bites. Between the years 1347 to 1351, this plague killed somewhere between 75 and 200 million people in Eurasia, uh, 30 to 60% of the population at that time. Next. What is perhaps less known is that Jews were blamed for the plague resulting in massacres of Jewish communities throughout Europe. In all, it's estimated that over 500 Jewish communities were decimated. And this, I think, shows what happens when people get desperate and promote theories that are not only harmful to oneself, but to others. Um, and it's, some, it's a reminder to us that we need to be very careful about this. Fortunately, we live today in an age in which we understand infection and the um, spread of viruses and of bacteria so that it's less likely that this sort of um, um, painting with a black, with a, with a broad brush against people who have nothing to do with the pandemic, um, we understand that you, sh you, you really don't need to do that today. But unfortunately, it was we've seen with you know, other illnesses and other things in our country, there is that likely tendency to um, assign blame. Next. Well, and, and you are seeing um, in in anti-Semitic racist circles, that this is already being blamed on the Jews. Uh -huh. uh, I did not see. Have you yeah. have you seen? Uh, but that? by people who blame everything on the Jews. Oh yes. Um, but I, I think it's also worth pointing out that there are other people being blamed for this. 
Um, and, and we have to be careful that an entire people in general aren't blamed for something for which they're not responsible. Correct. And it gets more interesting. Um, you're right, also blaming the Chinese. Um, because people didn't understand the biology of the disease, many believed that the Black Death was a divine punishment. By this logic, the only way to overcome the plague was to win God's forgiveness. Given the apocalyptic nature of the plague and the Christian belief that the Jews are destined to play a key role in the end of days, this is one of the reasons non-Jews cast suspicion on us. Okay? But there's a problem here. Weren't Jews dying from the plague too? Some anti-Semites <clears throat> at the time thought Jews seemed less susceptible to the plague. <clears throat> now, no one knows if this was true, but if it was, it's probably because many Jews had to live in ghettos away from the general population. In, in this case, forced isolation. Additionally, Jewish laws compelled Jews, Jews to ritually wash and bathe. Next. In an age when washing and bathing were difficult and not done often, the Jews were markedly more hygienic than their non-Jewish neighbors and were less likely to contract, to contract the disease. However, many saw the perceived discrepancy in numbers as evidence that the Jews had caused the plague. And by the way, they did not obviously post how many uh, had the plague or which groups had it and which didn't. So all of this was absolutely based on people's uh, narrow local perceptions. So no one even knows if this is true. This is simply a surmise that if fewer Jews dies, died, this may have contributed to um, the fact that they, they weren't exposed. Next. Um, Jewish law contains strict rulings on isolation during an epidemic like this, uh, like this warning. In other words, from Talmudic times, I'm adding here, from Talmudic times, Jews were told how to, how to, how to behave an epidemic. This, is, by the way, is not specifically about the cholera epidemic. When there's an epidemic in the town, keep your feet inside your house. Baba Kama 60B. Interesting how early this showed up and how important um, staying at home is. Or the Halakha's command against double dipping. One should not bite off a piece of bread in front of his fellow and put it into the bowl of food from which he eats. Next. However, if anything, Jews tended to suffer from plagues at a greater rate than the population at large. And this again is surmise, but I think this is, is truer than that we suffered less because we were far more urbanized than the peasantry. We had a much higher level of contact with potentially infected individuals. We lived in extremely cramped ghettos, often with limited sources of barely potable water. 
However, this didn't keep anti-Semites from attacking. Next. This is very interesting. On July 6, 1348, during uh, one of uh, the, the uh, Black, the yeah, this is the uh, Black Plague epidemic. Pope Clement VI issued the first of two bulls. Uh, those are uh, papal announcements, instructing Christians not to blame the Jews for the epidemic then sweeping across Europe. Noting that Jews too were dying from the Black Death, Clement announced that people who cast blame on the Jews had been seduced by that liar, the devil. But the destruction of hundreds of Jewish villagers con villages continued. And I, does anybody have a thought here uh, as to why uh, Pope Clement would have come out and sent out these bulls protecting the Jews? Any thoughts? Or any questions about what we've covered so far? There's more coming. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons is that he in some some of the church offices they they use the Jews or valuable uh, advisors or sources of income and they wanted to protect the Jews for their own purposes not because they had any love of the Jews particularly okay yeah I, and that the court Jew is what you're talking about right yeah uh, did they use us for other things as well well we were money lenders yeah and we propped up a, a lot of the Pope's project. Plus, we paid um, taxes. So uh, while I guess we can say that, you know, maybe there was some good in his heart, um, it's hard given the history of the church in these matters in those times, perhaps it's, it's a little bit harder to accept um, that this was for uh, a benefit. Yeah, part, part of it may have been that some of the, you know, uh, kings or leaders or princes in Europe who, who had Jews helping them had then uh, implored the Pope to make this announcement. Yeah. It may have been indirect. That, that may be as well. Uh, and um, looks like Dave Simonoff has said that right-wingers um, are spreading the coronavirus and that that's a punishment, say that, say that the spreading virus is punishment for um, opposing Jesus. Right, so that's, that, it's, that's a link, it's a link to an article that Dave shared okay. that, of someone saying that the spread of the coronavirus in the synagogues is a punishment for, for opposing Jesus. And you can click on that link if you wanna read the article. Okay. Um, and then Matt and Bob have both pointed to other um, ultra-Orthodox communities in the states that, um, that are not respecting the social distancing. And uh, Matt shared that six rabbis are among those that have died so far. Yeah. Uh, is uh, Jay Holden, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, they use them for doctors. And they have this mask uh, that has a long point. That we have a little one that we got from Venice. And supposedly they would have this mask and put some tissue in it. So they used the Jews for doctors to, to treat the plague because they were dispensed, the doctors, you know, the Jews were dispensable, but they used this mask. So when they got close, because they thought it was the air that transmitted this, so they wouldn't breathe in the air of the sick person. 
So this is called the the plague, the mask of the plague, and we got a little one when we're in uh, in uh, in Venice. Wow, fascinating! Thank you. <clears throat> okay, um, back to the PowerPoint. And next. Um, so, Jews confront AIDS. The latest epidemic we've confronted is AIDS. A reform legal opinion, Contemporary Reform Responsa, number 82, and it was offered in 1985 by a reform rabbi, dealing with AIDS adds a bit more to our historical response and shows that it hasn't changed much at all since the Middle Ages. And so at this point, I think Rabbi Simon's going to put up the responsa and we'll read it together. And then he'll questions from it. Is it up? Okay, can everybody see it? Okay. Contemporary Jewish American Reform Responsa, here's the question. The current AIDS epidemic has led to much fear in various communities. Individuals afflicted with this disease have been removed from positions, ostracized socially, and their children excluded or uh, segregated in schools. What has been the traditional approach of Judaism to such epidemics for which there's no known cure? And I felt this would also give us historical background. The answer, we must be concerned with the victims of AIDS as the disease is fatal. They need our compassion. We will not deal with the problems of sexual morality raised by AIDS in this response, but only with fear of the potential epidemic. The fear of the general population is understandable as little is known about the disease its incubation period, or potential cure. Concerns Rabbi, about the- do you, do you remember what year this was from? 1985. Okay. Concern for both the individual and the community when a member is afflicted with a dangerous disease has been shown since biblical times. The book of Leviticus, and I referred to this at the very beginning, contains de detailed instructions of how a skin disease, which is called Mitsura, and it's a, a contagious one, is to be diagnosed, might be um, Rabbi, I muted you for a second, but you're unmuted now. Okay. Um, uh, bu -bu -bu -bu. The priest who made the, uh, let's see, the di diagnosed and handled. During the period of this illness, afflicted person was isolated. Priest made the diagnosis, examined the person after seven days, as well as subsequently. When the disease had come to an end, complex ritual of purification was provided. The precautions extended from the individual to the house in which he lived, <clears throat> and it too was examined 
and if necessary, scraped and replastered, and a ritual, uh, pur ritual purification was mandated. Um, although we do not know the name of the disease called Mitsura by the Bible, it was clearly contagious and led to vigorous efforts to isolate the individuals involved. These procedures developed further by Mishnah and Talmud. Fourteen chapters in the Mishnah uh, Negaim, which deal with the subject in considerable detail. Mitsura was treated only from a ritual point of view. Some authorities, so they do not apply the say, they do not apply the rules of non-Jews. Um, by the way, that was that you should not use uh, Christian doctors because the assu assumption, non-Jewish doctors, the assumption was they would somehow put a spell over you or use um, purposely use wrong medicine to kill you. This obviously came out of an era when there was not a lot of um, um, a lot of trust of, of the non-Jewish community. All contact with Jews who were afflicted were to, was to be avoided. Um, this included the sick person, his room, any food near him, and even the air near the sick room. Insects and flies, which had contact with the deceased uh, diseased person, were to be avoided. For example, when the diseased person came to the Beit HaMidrash in order to study, which obviously they let him do, and by the way, which may be part of the reason we're seeing it in the ultra-Orthodox community, he was separated by other students by a wall which was to be 10 handbreadths high and four wide. Um, I don't know how far that was, but hopefully it's six feet, but it's also uh, a high wall, though of course airborne viruses can get over it. It was also mandated that he enter the building first and leave it last. Um, how many people are having their food delivered, having it left on the porch, and after the person leaves, picking it up? These individuals were excluded from the community and usually lived outside the cities. If a man was afflicted by this illness, his wife had a right to divorce him, and vice versa, those who suffered from such diseases were to avoid sexual intercourse. In the, where's the rest of it? In the Talmudic period, um, Individuals so afflicted were considered akin to the dead. In the New Testament, some such diseased individuals called to Jesus from a distance as they were obviously prohibited from approaching anyone in the community. Remember, we had crossover Jews going into early Christianity. Discussions in the Talmud and the later response to lit literature, which dealt with other epidemic diseases, usually were less drastic. They suggested that a fast, and this was very common, be decreed as the pestilence was thought to be the result of community sins. In other words, if you, the community thought they had done something wrong, they couldn't figure out what it was, you would have fast days where you would become miserable. And by being miserable, the assumed trade-off is that somehow the misery 
God would lift the misery of the plague. Jews in the Middle Ages, like the rest of the population, often fled. Uh, but in this day and age, where do you go to, except if you're in Louisiana and come to Florida, whenever a plague or epidemic threatened? An epidemic existed um, if a smaller city stuff suffered three deaths from a known disease or three consecutive days or nine deaths in three days in a larger city, which could provide 1,500 young men as soldiers. So it's interesting here how they decided if you were living in a city that had an epidemic. Um, I don't know exactly how we decide today that it's time to uh, keep everybody indoors, but that was the Talmudic measure or, or criteria. The Jewish medical works of the 17th century contain regulations which govern epidemic diseases. For example, as the garments of the sick were considered to provide a source of contagion, they were be, to be avoided until thoroughly aired. All drinking water was to be purified as a preventative against the epidemic. Um, Dr. Lewis Elias Herschel suggested a number of ways of fighting smallpox. They included quarantine, washing with vinegar by those who came into contact with the, with the ill. Um, Israel Salanter took a humane and courageous approach to cholera epidemic in Vilna during his lifetime is the urge the committee to a community to assist victims. It is clear from all this that our forefathers, this was written at a different age, sought to protect themselves through whatever ways were available from epidemics. The avenues of quarantine and fight a flight were used. And then he goes on to say, and we don't need to read the rest of this, that we should follow the advice of the medical community. So it's very clear, at least from this reform responsa, I think it's very clear that Jewish law, including Orthodox Jewish law, um, except for those who decide they're above the law, is very clear that all of these ways of avoiding um, contagion should be taken very seriously. And um, I'm just amazed at how far-sighted our ancestors were. And once again, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything we're doing today is something that they contemplated and followed in their own day. Um, we're about to get into discussion, but any questions up to this point? Okay, next. I don't know what that is. Um, now, who shall live and who shall die? You decide. For our discussion, doctors today are having to decide who shall get ventilators when supply is limited and who shall be taken off ventilators. And also, um, who to resuscitate or who not to resuscitate. Um, businesses are having to decide between public safety and possible bankruptcy. What does Jewish legal precedent and the Holocaust say about these? 
because a lot of these life and death issues did come up in the concentration camps about these who shall live and who shall die matters. And what do you think? So um, that's the end of the PowerPoint. Um, I hope it was informative for everybody. And I think that it would be interesting to first take up the question of the benefit or welfare of the community versus the welfare of the community vis-a-vis -vis the economic situation. Thoughts? If we don't solve the health problems, we're in the future not going to have to worry about the economic problems. You have to solve the health problems to have healthy people to run the economy, to be part of the economy. And if there's no economy left when they come, when, when um, they come back? Well, and, if those, and if those who, and I'm being a, a devil's advocate here. Yes. And if those who um, grease the economy with money have been left essentially penniless, uh, because we don't know exactly what this infusion of federal money will exactly do, then what do they come back to? Or more important, the, the, uh, the other side of the other part of this is, and at what point do you open up the economy? Going back, in my feeling, going back to the question of what if there's no economy, but if you don't take care of the health problems, there'll be nobody there for an economy. Uh, well, that's, go ahead. That aside, I mean, I hear what you're saying, Rabbi, but by the same token, there have been many times where for not health reasons, our economy has gone south and specifically, you know, the, the Great Depression. And people just have to accept that life isn't normal and they'll just have to rebuild. We've done that throughout civilization. It's a trade-off. Yeah, but that was an economic situation and um, there wasn't a lot, well, there was plenty we could have done. We've learned from it economically. This one is different in which you could have uh, mass kill-offs, uh, mass, mass deaths in the hundreds of thousands. Clearly, some people are going to survive. In fact, most people I'm reading do survive this. And are they to come back to an economy that has collapsed? I, I think yes. You know, I mean, it's all part of trade-offs. You're absolutely right. And I'm not saying that this isn't different, but if you, it goes back to the idea that if you don't take care of what's going on, then a lot of people are going to die. And I see what you're saying. Maybe to a certain degree, let it take its role and back to the who shall live, who shall die. And then what's left, we don't destroy the economy. But for me, 
people are more important than things as long as we can feed ourselves and protect ourselves. And so I'm more for rebuilding the economy than I am for uh, saving the economy at the expense of people dying. That's just my feeling. I think it's pretty conflicting if you look at even the sort of turn that Governor Cuomo in New York took. Initially, when de Blasio wanted to shut things down, Governor Cuomo said, you're not shutting down. I'm the one that has to authorize that. And he was very against it. Now, all of a sudden, he's this prophetical leader who's shutting everything down and leading the curve. And he's saying every life is worth it and no life will be sort of sacrificed here. And if you juxtapose that against the arguments that say, don't trash the economy and sort of protect those that need more protection. And as you mentioned earlier, if many people will live even if they get the virus, then do you figure out a way to run the economy, take lesser risks with people who can more likely withstand the virus? And I think it's a tough argument as we're getting into, do you take the risk of some lives to avoid this massive economic catastrophe that we're sort of heading into? Thank you. Others? Surely others. Does everybody else feel Hi, um, much the same? Go ahead. Yeah, Rabbi, um, I have to leave in about eight minutes, but the thing that concerns me is how can you have a stable economy when you don't trust your government, when you can't believe what they say, when you look at other countries like South Korea that have had testing the mayor of Miami said he had the testing immediately he was the second case if we don't have the testing the good thing that happened today was opening the two quarantine hotels on Fowler but it just seems like the tests come and go they close down the Tampa Bay so we could all be walking around and not know who can go back to work they don't even know if you can go back if you've had it so it's such an unknown but you can't have an economy if you don't trust your main government. Well, and I appreciate what you're saying. I want to make sure this doesn't become political in any way. Um, so I think I can answer you by saying that uh, we get information in all kinds of ways. Uh, some is from the government, some is from the press, um, both local and um, national. And I think, therefore, we get a pretty balanced idea of what's going on. So I don't think that that is going to hurt the economy. However, one of the things that I believe is starting to happen that I'm reading about and I've been worried about is the um, cutting off of the uh, transportation of goods and of, of goods. Uh, that's becoming a real issue, and it's prompting an issue in terms of hunger for those who don't have food, and also a food supply issue for people who do have food but don't know if they're going to have food in the next week or two weeks or three weeks or month. So how do we deal with that? And that's for all of us. Doesn't some of the economy need to be opened up? And that leads to the even greater question, how will we determine when to open up the economy and how do we determine how much of it to open up? 
Can I just say something before I leave? One of the problems with the nurses on strike, with the people at the warehouses on strike, is we have to get the supplies out for the prevention and the protection. So it just seems like there's some real serious centralization problems going on right now to really be able to fight the epidemic. But I'm sorry, I have to leave, but it's been wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being on it and stay well. Okay. Others? Anybody else want to weigh in? Rabbi, I mean, people who are doing some of these jobs, and I guess they're afraid for their own safety, and they're striking. No, I'm not talking about the nurses, but for instance, like the Instacart folks and whatnot, mm -hmm. or Whole Foods folks wanting more money. I, I can't be inside their head and, and understand what's going on, but from a structural standpoint, I mean, the truck drivers are still out there and most of the warehouses are working well, but if people are going to take their own self-interest as the first base point, unlike the, you know, the medical community, then we, we are going to have a distribution uh, problem. And the only way for the government probably to solve that is then you bring the military in to man some of those things and that can get problematic as well. Right. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, I read today, I think, and some yesterday, that workers now aren't able to get to the field. Other worker fields, other workers uh, are too sick to get to the fields. And then um, trucks are having uh, trouble getting through on the interstates uh, because of the roadblocks checking people uh, from coming from one state into the other. I don't think any of us have a, an answer for it, but <clears throat> I don't think it's as simple as just saying, um, you know, people come first. Obviously, I feel people come first, um, but at some point we got to get realistic and realize it, it will affect all people if we shut down uh, too early. Go ahead, Jay. Okay, um, I think the, the issue has to be with testing. As soon as we have tests that show who, uh, who is immune uh, and who has the virus, then we can find out which people are healthy. And I think once these tests come to being, then we can test large numbers of people and the healthy can continue going back to work or the immune can continue going back to work and that will increase the workforce. Right now, I think we have to wait, hopefully not too long, but I think till we get testing available, and huge numbers for everybody, I think that'll make a big difference. That'll turn this thing around. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, I just worry and I'm concerned about how fast these tests can get out. Um, that could take quite a long time. In regards to testing and reopening, uh, <clears throat> one of our, the lead doctors in this country who most people believe in above everybody, everyone else, his comment when they first discussed, could you open the country in certain areas was, if you had the data, which is the testing, that's what he said. You have to have the testing first to have the data to see who could go back to work and where you can open the economy. And again, we all go back to the testing. 
Okay. And Rabbi, if you uh -huh. don't mind, of course, you and a couple of other folks know that, you know, Lewis isn't my specialty. We, we did lots of scenarios, developed, exercised them. In this case, it wasn't a natural outbreak. It was, you know, some power that released a biological agent. And so we've got mm -hmm. pandemic scenarios, both on the health side and on the Department of Defense side. Uh, and the fact is, is that the testing to identify, you know, where you have issues and where you don't so that you can get some of that economic activity back together is, is the first thing. And the, there are, the equipment is out there and the problem is, is that they're not making it enough. The FDA is not approving certain devices and you, you don't have enough swabs as well as local governments aren't, to the best of my knowledge, even trying to look ahead and be proactive instead of reactive of when they get the testing equipment and the swabs to do it, of the plan that they're gonna have for people to come in an orderly fashion that allows everyone to understand the limit as, as, as well as the extent of, of the spread of the, you know, virus. Right. Ruth, tell people what you do. Well, I don't do anymore, <laughs> but what I you was, did. <laughs> yeah, I was a retired chemical Corps army officer. So we deal in, we used to deal in the offensive side, but now we've mostly deal with the mitigation and avoiding nuclear biological or, uh, chemical consequences as a result of their use or naturally occurring. So when you did it before and you went through uh, game situations and a biological uh, weapon, let's say, was dropped on the country, as you went through these, didn't you, wasn't the, the, the goal to set up uh, what would be needed and therefore planning for what needed to be held in readiness to offset it? Yes, Rabbi, uh, but just you use some words that have a different meaning. Usually in the scenarios that you would have if it were an offensive use by another power, the two main ways that they would use a biological weapon is either through the water sources Mm -hmm. or through our food sources and the mm -hmm. distribution of that food. And so it would take the system a while to even understand that a bioweapon had been used against them. And once it was determined, in most of the scenarios, everything has gone to, you know what, in a handbasket. And then certain um, executive powers are used and you have the military come in, not just uh, Title 32, but your, you know, national right. forces. Correct. That don't but my, let, let me interrupt, but, but my question is, in your planning, wasn't the purpose of it to uh, have things in readiness to uh, respond? Absolutely. Hmm? absolutely. And a perfect example, I don't know if everyone's heard, but our so-called national stockpile of ventilators, a good number of the ventilators that have been delivered from that stockpile aren't working because of fiscal constraints or some other reasons. 
the maintenance wasn't being done on them. And so that's a national staff pile over which the military had no, you know, control. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's a national problem that that we can't control. Am I not understanding your question? No, you got it. Um, Anybody else have a question for Ruth since this is an area of... Okay. Um, It looked like somebody was. No? All right. Um, I I want to say... I do have a a comment that those scenarios that people are prepared for and stockpiled for have often been the same old scenarios run repeatedly, like nuclear attacks from a submarine or anthrax distribution. And as Governor Cuomo had pointed out, the disaster that we actually encounter and have to prepare for is usually a new one that's largely a surprise. Mm-hmm. Rarely have the item stockpiled that we wish we had because we have reliably prepared for things that we've already experienced or planned for and the disaster we encounter is usually a surprise. Yeah, thanks Frank, that's very fair. Um, I I thought from a legal standpoint, just briefly, and I alluded to it at the beginning, uh, from a Jewish legal standpoint, the question is, um, should a Jew close down his or her business in the wake of this kind of epidemic? Um, Especially if that meant that he or she would be... um, that, that there would be losses to the business. The only thing I could come up with that was near a parallel is the question of whether a Jew should, sh- should close his or her shop on Shabbat or on holidays. Because if doing so, and if that particular Jew really depended on weekend trade, then that Jew would experience a loss. Um, one of the practices that had been going on is that there would be a legal fiction in which the store Jewish store owner would write a contract for a one-day transfer of property of business uh, and property to a non-Jew um, who would and had, it would have the stipulation that that non-Jew would then. Uh, return uh, the property and the business on the next business day. And in that way, uh, through legal fiction, the Jew was not keeping his store open. Um, I I have feelings about these orthodox legal fictions, but I do, I thought it was important to see that Jewish law and Jews in real life have actually asked themselves how do I weigh the personal good versus the good of the community? Any th- any Sarah, I, response I, to that? Hi, how are you, Sarah? Fine. Listen, I closed my practice down completely. Um, I've got a note on the door saying it's not safe. I was concerned that I did not have the equipment to protect me, my staff, or the patients. And also patients were coming in and coughing all over. Mm-hmm. And I just figured it was not worth it. I'm trying to set up some telemed. I don't know what other people in the community sure. are all doing, okay. but I could not protect myself or yes. patients. Yeah. 
So for you, it was both protecting your business and yourself. And well, my business is going gone, you know. Yeah. But it was, you know, is my life worth staying in business for? Exactly. I don't. Jay, are you working? Me? Jay Older. Yeah, no, no, I've I've uh, shut down. Uh, but we have stuff that comes from the uh, you know National Academy as to which procedures can be done. Uh, there's even a law in, in Texas that I heard of, you know, I can't guarantee it, but heard of through others that say if you do certain eye surgery, you can be fined or imprisoned. Uh, so most of us are shutting down anything that's considered elective, but then yeah. the question is what is elective? And of course, there's some gray area there. So again, some of the younger folks uh, are still going in uh, for emergency type stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm referring anything. I still have my phone open and uh, taking calls and I can answer questions. But if anyone has something that's urgent, then I'll refer to some of the younger doctors who are still in the area and I've been in touch with them. So that's how, how I'm doing it. So I am temporarily shut down. Thank you. Other questions or thought on business and economy, et cetera. Okay, then uh, uh, let's um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I have a comment. Uh, going back to your Sabbath situation that you were talking yeah. about, when you first mentioned it at the beginning, you were talking about uh, that the Jewish shop owner did this so that they could retain their their income or profits. So it occurs to me that whatever arrangement is made with the non-Jew to run uh, the business on, on Sabbath, if, if the Jew kept the profits from that, it would seem to me they're still violating the injunction of the Talmud. Um, if he shared in the profit, <clears throat> yes, you're right. Yeah. Unless written into, a, uh, in, and, and it was done as purely, and it was written into the agreement that it was purely, uh, Jewish law and had nothing to do with secular law. All those were written into those agreements. And, um, <clears throat> It indicated that um, that um, if you had profit sharing, it could be a problem. So there was no profit sharing, and on the books, the Jew did not receive any of the receipts from the day that the non-Jew owned it. But nobody knows what went on under the table. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, I mean, you, you'd suggested something otherwise at the beginning, but it brings up another question to me. What about somebody who's a landlord and a Jewish landlord and say that, that you can allocate part of your rental receipts to the Sabbath days, uh, and this would be an ongoing situation. Can a Jewish landlord uh, keep the, the rents that were uh, allocated to the Sabbath day? I think all those agreement, contractual agreements would be the same, but again, you don't know what would happen under the table. Um, I, I want and to I, move, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one other thing. I don't know if you're aware of it, but in Sandus's order that came out, um, it says anyone that's a senior citizen has to stay home. It doesn't have any exceptions for doctors or healthcare workers or to go get food or do anything. So well, a lot of people don't have to get no, the order that he has is if you're a senior citizen, you have to stay home, period. Oh. No exceptions in it. Wow. Uh, which makes me 
wonder, you know, if, if you have to stay home and you're sick and need to go to the hospital, according to the order, you can't leave to go to the hospital. It's absurd. Well, Jewish law, of course, says uh, the most important thing in all of this is pikuach nefesh, the saving of a life, both yours and, and that of other people. It's never the, the other thing that, that I've been looking at, <clears throat> um, you know, right now we're, we're in the section of Torah where we talk about the sacrifices and, um, you know, something that's often not so relevant for us, but you would give the best of what you had because you thought that was what God wanted of you. Mm -hmm. So I think people are sacrificing a tremendous amount right now. But if we really do believe that the saving of a life is the most important thing, and that's what God wants of us, then the sacrifice we're making is, is what God would want as well. Um, but I also know that, that people are really, really hurting, and it's going to be the community's responsibility and the greater community's responsibility. Sure. And that's what we're seeing through the, um, through the relief packages that I pray do their job that it becomes the greater community's responsibility to make sure that that sacrifice doesn't um, kill anyone, really, right. um, that, that people are able to recover. Jeff? In, in regards to the contract... Uh, Jeff, Jeff was up first. Okay. He had, um, oh, Jeff. Hi, Rabbi. Are you there? I'm, I'm, I'm back a couple steps uh, on, on the testing. Uh, in an ideal world, we'd have the testing available for everybody. Um, but I got a very, uh, very informative uh, vi video from a doctor who's on the front lines and stuff. And he was talking about that not everybody needs to be tested, that if you have the symptoms, including fever and stuff, call your doctor. And if, if he goes through the steps and he arranges for you to have, uh, to get testing, great, you do that, you self-isolate, but basically, uh, uh, not and stay at home and, and, and do the things that you're supposed to do. But we need to look at what we do from, from this minute forward. Looking backward doesn't do us any good except in the future. Thank you. Anybody want to comment on that? Okay. I, just, I was going to comment back to the <clears throat> contracts that from what we have talked about in Torah study and some of your uh, Romeo uh, discussions and everything else is how, how is the Torah uh, interpreted and the rabbis can come up with whatever interpretation they want to get around what may be in the Torah and the Talmud. Okay, obviously, sure. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, I know it's one o'clock. Um, let's just take five minutes for those who are left to ask the um, quick question. Um, how, what do we do with this situation? Who shall live and who shall die? And who makes that decision? Thoughts? Because we know that in, in some cases, if they don't have enough ventilators, I'm reading that in some cases, the medical foot personnel are deciding this one has a chance, this one doesn't. And sometimes deciding it on the bot, not just on medical condition, but also deciding it on the basis of age. Thoughts? 
It's a horrible position for anyone to be in. I wouldn't want to make that decision. Doesn't someone have to, though? Yeah, someone does have to. And, you know, in the military, we've been making those decisions, and, and people are making those decisions right now uh, when you have conflict and you bring in people and you don't have enough resources. It happened in Vietnam, and it will always happen in wars. The doctors have to decide who has the best chance of surviving for whatever reason. If, and if that's age or your health condition, you have to trust that they were not being, you know, holding anything against anyone because they were 70 or because they had diabetes. They were just being clinical and determining what was the best use of the resources that they had available. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't break your heart or cause you to have nightmares, which is what is happening. It, it does if you're a moral person. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and as we draw to a close, I'd like to add a personal note here. My great interest in this is very personal. I never met my father's father, my grandfather in Germany. Um, he was a victim of the Spanish flu in 1918 and died. And the result of that death has had a tremendous impact on our families. Um, I know that in my case, my uncle was seven years old at the time, and he did remember his father's death. And my uncle lived a very confused, difficult, unstable, fragile life. And I have to imagine that um, the death of his father had an impact. Um, the, the other is um, that um, my own father told me about it. And he became, I believe, very over... Um, zealous in his protection of me. Of course, I was also an only child. But, um, and that has followed me into my own life, where I think I have a greater fear of disease than uh, I ordinarily would. So on a personal level, this is very important to me. The sad news with my grandfather is had he lived, he would have been in his 60s or seven, uh, late 60s, early 70s, by 1943 and may not have survived the Holocaust anyway. Um, the other is one of the uh, stories on Jewish literature that came out of the Holocaust. And some of you have heard me talk about it before. What happened is that in one particular concentration camp, the commandant ordered that X number, a quota, of Jewish boys, uh, teen, teenagers, were to be sent to the crematoria, and a list was to be made up uh, by the section heads of who would be on the list. One of the Jews in the camp who had brought in diamonds was able, if necessary, it, one, he was able to find out who was on the list and found out his son was on it, and number two, he therefore had the wherewithal to buy his son off the list. He went to one of the rabbis in the camp, who was also um, there as a, an internee. 
And um, he asked the rabbi, what should he do? Because if he uh, ransomed, so to speak, his son off the list because of the quota, it would mean that another child, somebody else's child, would be put on the list instead. In which case, it would be his decision that that child dies, not the decision of the Nazis or some impersonal choosing force. In this particular case, the father decided that he could not play God. He would keep his hands off of it and not make a decision. And that resulted in the death of his son. Short, long story short, when the war was over, he went to the same rabbi because he was burdened with guilt. And the rabbi said, uh, go and do good things for others, and it will at least help some. But the point of this, and again, a true story, is when do we play God, and how do we play God, and how do we make these decisions? Uh, I heard Ruth say we do it on the basis of the patient's actual condition, as opposed to extraneous criteria. Any thoughts on this? And then we'll close out. And I'll close with a prayer. Any thoughts? I don't well, know. This exactly is this. A, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm not sure it's exactly a thought on this, but I used to volunteer uh, for the fire department and the first aid and rescue squad. And we went through a lot of training for mass casualty incidents and things like that, where you'd have to go and tag folks and be making those decisions. And I can only say that probably one of the things I'm most thankful for is never having been put in that position. <laughs> and I know somebody has to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just glad it wasn't me. Um, so I, I don't know, that's really not an answer, but <laughs> that's no, I guess, I my know. version yeah. of an answer. Of course, no, I, and I appreciate that. Well, all of us at this period of time, uh, unless anybody has another comment, anybody? Okay. Well, thank you for being on this. I'm sorry this had to be the topic. Um, I, I hope that as few people will be affected by the virus as possible in that um, while life can never completely get back to normal when we lose loved ones, it's always our hope that somehow um, we can move forward if not exactly as before. Um, I'd like to say the prayer, Baruch Blessed are you, O God, who heals the sick. Be with us, not only, O God, with those who are sick of body, but also who have pain of the heart and mind. And at this point then, Rabbi Simon, if you have more to add, um, I'll hand it back to you. Great. And, thank and thanks to everybody for doing the Zoom program for us. Yeah, no, I wanna thank Rabbi for putting so much work into, into preparing and giving so much information and wisdom. Um, and I know we're gonna be looking to, to one another as, as we continue. Um, just a few things coming up. Our Shabbat schedule this weekend um, will be the same as it's been. We'll have Friday morning Preschool Shabbat, 5.30 taught Shabbat, 7 o'clock is our um, Shabbat service. At 9.15 Saturday morning, Rabbi Farb is doing Torah study, um, looking at the history of the plagues and the 10 plagues and how 
um, that uh, the, the portrayal of the plagues has changed over time. And then we have a casual Shabbat morning service at 1030. On Monday, um, I'll be doing two more sessions on why this Passover is different from all other Passovers and how you might think about Seder, whether you're home alone or with a, a spouse or with your family. Um, and that's either at 11.30 a.m. or 8 p.m. on Monday. And then for Passover, we're going to be putting together a video Haggadah that you can use. And on the second night, when we would have had our community Seder, um, we're going to have an opportunity for conversation like this. And more information about that will be coming out um, early next week. But plan on about 6.30 Thursday night. We'll come together for the second cup of wine, um, a few songs, and then four breakout uh, conversations for our four questions. So we're, we're thinking of ways that we can continue to, to be with all of you. And, um, and most importantly, if, if you do need anything, um, you know, you can always reach out to any of us anytime. So thank you again, Rabbi. You're and welcome. I'm going to go ahead and end Rabbi. the meeting because yeah. I have the, the Tampa Rabbinical Association is waiting for our Zoom account because we had a, a one o'clock meeting. So I'm going to uh, end Rabbi, this. Yeah. Would you, how do I get on that one? Um, you have the link in your email, but I'll, I'll resend it to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Very Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye. And thank thanks you. for, yeah, thanks thank to you everybody for, this. for I your good it. wishes. <laughs> thank you. All right. Bye-bye.